Today's podcast is brought to you by Teresa Escone. Teresa has created watercolor tutorials perfect for beginners. All tutorials include a frameable print of the art, supply list, instructions, and definitions. Teresa's taught art for more than 35 years, introducing hundreds of people to the marvelous world of watercolor. Join her and access your own artistic expression. Check it out at etsy.com slash Escone Art Tutorials. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 101 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about building a career as a quilter with my guest, Sue Blyweiss. I'm here visiting Sue in her home studio in Pepperell, Massachusetts, which is about a 45-minute drive from my home and is a beautiful place to visit in July. Sue creates vibrant, colorful art quilts intended to delight the eye of the viewer and draw them in for a closer look. The author of several books, she's written numerous articles for Quilting Arts Magazine, appeared on The Quilt Show with Alex Anderson and Ricky Timms, and Quilting Arts TV. She's currently working on her third book, due out in the fall of 2018. Sue's award-winning quilts have been exhibited internationally and reside in private collections all over the world. Sue Blyweiss, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here in your home today. It's so great to have you here. Yeah, I'm really excited. I, we first met at QuiltCon and we had kind of a brief conversation, but I was like, oh, wow, you live near me. I promised to come visit you this summer. So I'm glad that we made it happen. Me too. Um, so you started out your sort of professional career in a very different place than where you are now. Um, you were working in corporate America. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing back then before the shift. Yeah, way, way back in the way back time, right? Um, let's see, I, the last position I, was, I held was um, at a major uh, insurance company here in, in, in the Boston area. Um, I was director of business intelligence. So it was a lot different than what I'm doing now. Um, and um, I uh, had reached a point where I was traveling a lot and I was never home and um, I needed to do something different. I needed to change. And so, um, and so that's what I did. I decided to pursue something different and I gave my notice and three weeks later, I was unemployed and ready for new challenges. And when was this? This was in um, 2012. Uh, no, sorry, 2002. Um, okay. It was the year, um, it was after 9-11. Um, and so did 9-11 impact your thinking? Because I think for many of us who lived through that horrendous experience, we kind of, depending on how well, how much it affected us, but we came away from it feeling like life is short and we should probably pursue the things that are most important. Yeah, absolutely. And um, especially because... Um, I had two coworkers who were in the buildings. And so um, watching, having experienced it from watching what they went through as survivors and the changes in them, 
Um, and just, you know, I mean, you couldn't, you didn't live through that time and not be affected by it at some level. And for me, it was one of those moments where it was, it, it, it was the, you know, life is very short here and it changes in a second. And so, um, and it made me realize how much time I was spending away from my husband and my dogs and the things that I really enjoyed doing and, and being with. And so that had a, a big impact on me. And so it was less than a year later that um, I made the decision and I left. Uh-huh. And had you always been uh, like an artistic person and a creative person? Because you kind of left, you didn't get to quilting right away, but you did get to creative pursuits right away. And I'm just wondering whether you were picking up where you'd left off as a child or whether it was actually just something brand new that you discovered in yourself. Yeah, I when I was a kid, I was always a crafter. Um, I started sewing, at, well, was, you know, back when I was in um, junior high school in seventh grade, they actually had home ec classes. So, you know, we the boys took wood shop and I took a sewing class. And so, and um, one of my aunts was a big sewer and she actually taught me how to sew. And so I had always been crafty on some level. And, um, and then later on in you know, my late teen years and my early 20s, I did a lot of actually garment making. I would make clothes for myself. Um, and so I always, I was always doing something creative, maybe home deck or like I said, garment sewing. Um, so it's, it was always there instilled in my, in my core, I guess. So when I left, um, you know, corporate America, then, you know, sewing seemed to be the natural thing to to get back into. Right. Okay. So take us through sort of the creative journey from that moment to the time that you actually sort of realize, okay, making quilts is maybe the thing for me. Cause there were stages along the way there was, um, well, at first maybe a home deck business was right. Was that the first idea? The first thing was, um, yeah, it was actually home deck. I thought I would go and make curtains for everybody for a living. I thought that's what I would do. And I, and I actually, um, I took out an ad in a paper and, and I went on my first um, call and um, to do a um, to do an estimate for a person. And I sat at this woman's kitchen table, and she wanted me to make her new kitchen curtains um, out of sheets that she liked. And she wanted me to recover her dining room chairs and stuff. And I remember sitting there thinking, "I cannot do this for a living. <laughs> there is no way that I can I can do this." make curtains out of sheets for people as, as a way to, you know, as, as a living, it and just I, wasn't going to fly. <laughs> I think that, you know, sometimes people think, well, that's like the most obvious sewing business. Like, okay, you want a sewing business? That would be it, right? That's right. what you would do. But of course, there's lots of other ways to have a sewing business. And yeah. so that was not the right fit. No, that wasn't okay. the fit. So I gave her a really big estimate and she didn't hire me. And I said, okay, that's it. For that. <laughs> and so then I actually came upon a weaving. There was a weaving class that was offered at a weaving studio, not far from where I lived. And I thought, well, you know, how cool would it be to make my own fabric to sew with? And so I took the weaving class and I loved it. I fell in love. It was two weeks later, I had my own loom. I had a room full of weaving yarns. I was bit by it. I loved it. And I actually wove pretty much consistently. It's all I did for um, a good couple of years. I did a lot of shows. I did a lot of commission work and, um, and I loved it. And I wove every day, all day. And I wove so much that I gave myself bone spurs in my left shoulder and I uh, had to have shoulder surgery and thus ended my all day weaving days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
So I had to find something else to do. And, um, and that led to, let's see, from there I went into bookmaking. Okay, so this is sort of like hand binding, exactly making traditional traditional bind bound books, traditional book binding mm-hmm. um, techniques with paper and bookboard, and um, and I did that for quite a, a lot of t- a long time. I did a lot of teaching. I had some online classes that I did. I sold a lot of books, um, and I really liked it. But I started to miss working with fabric because sort of fabric is was always something that you know I enjoyed working with. Yeah, so I. I started to transition into making fabric books and I was um, combining traditional bookmaking techniques with fabric. Um, and instead of using bookboard, I was using Tim Tex and fabric and I was making um, um, all kinds of mixed media and fabric books. And that was great. I had a great time doing that. And I did that um, for a couple of years. And then I kind of got a little bored with that and I wanted to get into working um, flat. You know, I was really, um, actually what happened was I was watching um, Simply Quilt and I saw Alex Anderson. And that's a PBS show. Yeah, it was way back. Yeah. Uh And and I thought, well, that's it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the next great American quilter. (laughs) I really thought that's what I was going to do. And so I went out and, and when you were thinking quilting, you were thinking a more traditional, traditional. nine patch or following a block, you know, a set of block patterns and yeah. that sort because that was what was presented on the show. Right, right. exactly. You know, mariners compasses and triangles and And had you seen bees. quilts before then or um, just not not really caught your eye? It, it apparently didn't really catch my eye for some reason. But when I saw it on the TV on that show, I thought, well, that's it. I could do that. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to cut up fabric and I'm going to sew it back together again. I'm going to make quilts. And and so that didn't go so well. I, I made one and it was really awful. I don't have the skill set for quarter inch seams and matching corners. It's just not my thing. I have great respect for those people who can do it. I can appreciate the, the work and the craftsmanship in it, but I just don't have the gift for it at all. What is it about it that just doesn't, does it sort of rob the joy for you? Or is it just that you were getting poor results and sort of decided, forget this? Or I think I'm just not a, well, first of all, I have a really hard time following directions. So that was working not in my favor. And I think I just don't like the, you know, the rules, the structure of it is just, you know, I find that very inhibiting. You know, I'm more of a wing it kind of person with especially mm-hmm. in my quilts now you know I'm, I'm much more on the free flow kind of thing and the traditional match the corners and press the seams kind of thing just it just does not it works against me so. and it requires a kind of a confidence to say I understand that there's a way to do this but I also feel like I can just do it in my own way I think there's a there's a certain sector of the population that would say no, you can't do that. You know, you ask, you absolutely need to know how it's done and that's comforting. But then for other people, that's inhibiting. So mm-hmm. knowing your own sort of creative self and how you work is important there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, and for me, you know, I, I love the look of um, of of log cabin quilts and, and that sort of thing. But when I do them, I, I alter the techniques, the construction techniques, and I use fusing as as the way to do it rather than piecing all the seams. So, you know, I, I sort of like to, you know, I like to just do my own thing my own way. It's, mm-hmm. 
That's just how you are. That's just how I am. Right. Okay. So after the sort of failed first traditional quilt, you were still bitten by the quilting bug. So what came next? Yeah. What came next was surface design. I started to get into um, making sort of mixed media quilts. Um, I was, you know, doing a lot of stamping on fabric and screen printing and um, painting and, and experimenting with, you know, different techniques for getting color on cloth and then cutting it up and and using fusing actually it was at that point I, I discovered fusible web and I would make sort of collaged mixed media type quilts. Um, and just for people who aren't familiar with how that works, but basically you're fusing this, um, it's almost like a sticky substance to the back of fabric that you then cut out and then you put it, uh, apply it onto a larger piece of cloth and with an iron. And then that sticks it, the fabric to the cloth without having to stitch it necessarily or to piece it. You can stitch it down later when you're actually quilting with quilting stitches, but. Right. It's a heat activated um, adhesive. So the heat of the iron activates the adhesive and that's what causes it to bond with the fabric below it. Um, and, and so that just appealed to you a lot yeah. more than piecing, which is when you cut pieces of fabric and sew them together very accurately and perfectly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because for me, it was, um, a lot of it has to do with the speed of it. You know, um, I don't have to cut everything up and then go sew it all together and then go to the next step. For me, I can, with fusing, I can sort of build on the fly, um, especially with collage. I think that's very freeing um, that you don't have to stop, sew something together and then come back to your composition. You can just have all your fabrics pre-fused with all the fusible on the back of them and then cut and layer and, and you know, you're, you're off and running. So, um, so I did that for a while. Um, I explored a lot of diff- different techniques. It was really... It was really a period of time where I was I was doing a lot of experimenting. I was every product out there, every technique out there. I wanted to dabble in, and it was it was a really um, and I look back on it now because I can see it hindsight. Um, but it was a really pivotal time for me because not only was I finding things that I liked to do, but I was finding things I didn't like to do and techniques that I was not drawn to. Um, and, and all of that experimenting led me to discover that the one technique that I really enjoyed doing was dyeing my own fabric. I really liked working with plain white fabric and taking that full circle to adding the color and then turning it into something, um, rather than working with commercial, um, fabrics and commercial prints. And so from that came a desire to be able to, dye fabrics consistently um, because up to that point I was really relying on serendipity for my results and you can't rely on it. Um, I think that's how most people who start dyeing their own fabric begin, which is to say that they sort of mix up a dye bath that seems like it would be interesting. They dye some fabrics and they maybe then don't have enough to finish the project, go back, don't remember exactly what was in that dye bath. The ratios can't quite achieve the same exact one again. And and so there's, there's creative challenge there, but there's also maybe difficulty because it's inconsistent. And so you can't, you know, for example, take a commission project and say, this will be your pink when you don't know what the pink will be. Yeah, exactly. And, and so 
Um, and so I threw myself into dyeing so that I could reproduce my results um, and build a stash of fabrics. And then, and then, you know, once I was worked through that stash, I would be able to re, you know, recreate those. And so I, um, I threw myself into fabric dyeing. I dyed hundreds and hundreds of yards of fabrics and, and I kept really good notes about how much water I used and how much dye and how much time the fabric sat in the water and in the dye and, and what fabric I was using. And I kept little swatches and I built myself a little library of note cards um, so that now I can, you know, if I run out of a particular yellow, I can go to my file cabinet and I can pull out my card with my yellow and I know exactly which yellow um, that I'm looking for and I can reproduce those results. And that, um, and that has really helped me to build what everybody looks at my work now and says, you have such a cohesive body of work. And it's really, a lot of that is due to not only the imagery that I use, but that color palette, because mm -hmm. it's consistent now from quilt to quilt. Right. And did you take workshops or not even just during this sort of dying exploration phase, but prior to it, when you were looking at or trying out all of these different, you know, techniques, were there, were there classes or, or, or workshops or books that you were doing, or were you just sort of trying things on your own? Yeah. I'm not really a workshop taker. I'm, I, I don't really do well in a workshop setting. So for me, it was more hands-on, you know, sort of learn as I go. Um, I'm a big, I'm an avid fan of books. So I had, um, a really, and I have a really extensive library on a lot of different techniques. Um, and so I basically learned from books and I learned a lot from trial and error. You know, most of it, most of my fiber education comes from trial and error. Mm -hmm. Um, because for me, that's the best way, um, that I can learn. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think knowing yourself as a learner is important too. Um, so sort of having the confidence to do it. And then also you have to be pretty methodical to say, okay, I've tried, you know, I'm going to work my way through this book, or I'm going to try all of these different techniques and take notes. So I know what worked and what didn't work, you know, um, so you have to approach it with some discipline. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's where keeping the notes came in, you know, building the file cabinet full of the filing system full of swatches, you know, not just dying and getting a great result and and then hoping for the best the next time. You know, it was keeping keeping a swatch and notes on on what I what I did so that I could go back and do it again. Yeah. And I think also there's something really nice to be said about starting with white and then creating your own signature color palette that then and I'm looking here in your studio at these different quilts that are um, hanging up and they all have your yellow and your blue and your purple. And, you know, it's it's very Sue, like we know it's you. And I think if you're, yes, if you're using commercial fabrics, you could turn to the same, you know, Kona color card every time or something like that, which, which can work for people for sure. But this even takes that a step further to say like, this is actually my orange that is mine. Yeah, and, and the other thing for me is that you know, I, I really, there's a, there's a great deal of satisfaction for me to start with that white piece of fabric and to just take it full circle all the way to the end and turn it into something that um, is, is so far removed from that plain white piece of fabric, you know? And when I look at, when I look at the pieces that I've created, I see just me there. Um, when I work with commercial fabrics, because I have worked with commercial fabrics and um, and I do like to do that, um, but when I look at the when I look at the finished result, I my voice 
is sort of muddled. You know, I don't see just me there. I see the fabric designer and I, and I see the manufacturer and I see a lot of other voices in there and not just mine. But when I look at my work, when I'm using my own hand dyed, all I see is me. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Teresa Escone. Teresa is an Alaskan artist and designer, and she portrays her impressions of flowers and landscapes and animals in a colorful and distinctive style that captures Alaska's rugged beauty. A long career in the fine arts with decades of juried shows at local museums and art galleries have evolved with the changing times, and now she's represented on fineartamerica.com. Her designs are licensed worldwide on tempered kitchen art, decorative plaques, tea labels, and numerous gift shop items. An award-winning PBS-produced broadcast video called Landscapes of the Imagination, the art of Teresa Escone, honored her in 1988. Teresa taught watercolor for more than 35 years, which led to her books, We're All Artists, Watercolor for Everyone, and Painting Pleasure, Adventures in Watercolor, and The Ultimate Palette, for which she holds a design patent. She also created UAA's Ultimate Watercolor Academy, and its success resulted in her nomination for the UAA 2000 Chancellor's Award for Teaching Excellence. Since 2011, her teaching has taken her to many foreign ports because she teaches watercolor on cruise ships. Her watercolor tutorials are available on Etsy at Teresa Escone Art Tutorials. In 2013, Teresa ventured into fabric design with Creatures of the Wild 1 and 2 for Robert Kaufman. And in 2016, Wildflowers by Teresa Escone for Clothworks. Teresa's most exciting development is a program she created to celebrate Alaska with fabric art panels. Teresa Escone Fabric Art is a totally new and unique program highlighting her art on fabric for Alaskan quilt shops. This program started in the fall of 2016, has seen phenomenal success with visitors to the great state of Alaska. In addition to the open panels available to all Alaskan shops, an unusual feature is the shop exclusive program, whereby shops choose a panel to sell exclusively for one year. A social media enthusiast, she's on Pinterest, Facebook, and Instagram. See her at TeresaEscone.com and get more information. Thank you so much, Teresa. And now back to my conversation with Sue. Can you just give us some tips about uh, materials and supplies for people who might want to start? Um, Where or what kind of fabrics and what kind of dyes do you think is best? Yeah, I work with um, a really tightly woven white fabric um, that I get from Tess Fabrics. Um, but, you know, Kona cotton is great. Um, you know, any fabric that is that is um, labeled as PFD, prepared for dyeing, will work great. And they're all different because the thread counts will be different. So the results you get will be different. So you sort of got to try a lot of different ones to find the best ones for you. Um, and I also work with um, Procyon dyes, the cold water fiber reactive dyes are my dyes of choice. Um and I don't buy the primaries and mix my own colors. And I and I can hear the collective gasps from right. From so buying the, the prime <laughs> buying the primaries would say would say okay, work with red, right. yellow, and blue, and that's it. And maybe black. And then from there, you're going to mix all of your own colors. But you're saying that's not what you do and that that is going to create a collective gas because people who are sort of purists around fabric dyeing, that is what they do. So what what is your take on that? Exactly. And I don't do that because I don't need to. 
because um, places like Pro Chemical and Dye and Dharma Trading and Jacquard, you know, they've already done the the mixing for me. You know, they've already taken two parts of this and three parts of that and a part of that and put it in a container um, to give me the color tur- turquoise that I want. So I don't need to spend a lot of time being a chemist and mixing, you know, this, that, and the other thing. I can just go to my my uh, dye cabinet and pull down, you know, turquoise number 193 or whatever it is. And I know that's what I'm going to get. And I know the result I'm going to get using the fabric and the amount of dye that, that, that I've, you know, that I've worked with. So, you know, I don't, I don't have to do all of that. They've done it for me. Mm -hmm. So you're, uh, you're okay with accepting that compromise. And I think it's interesting. Like, I think it is okay to accept compromises, (laughs) you know, I mean, it may may not be okay for some, I mean, for some people, they would say, well, I only want to use natural dyes, for example. I don't even want to do that. You know, so there's a whole range of what it means to dye your own fabric. Yeah. And some people really enjoy doing the mixing and stuff, but it's just not, it doesn't appeal to me. Right. And so don't let that purity get in your way of actually enjoying it and making art and making good work. I think there's, you know, some people would feel some level of self-doubt. Like if I don't like that part, then I really can't do this because it's not going to be accepted as pure art or it's not going to be, you know, judged as, you know, as worthy because I, I'm cheating in some way. But of course, it's not cheating in your mind. So um, anyway, being able to get over those humps, though, uh, psychologically, I think can be hard. Yeah. And and I think the other thing that that sort of scares people off from dying is that they think they need a, you know, a dye studio and a dedicated room and and they, it's a lot of chemicals and scary stuff. And um and, and that's not necessarily the case. I mean, when I first started dyeing, I was doing it in the backyard on a, you know, fold-out table in the summertime. You know, that's when I would dye fabrics. Um, and then I graduated to the kitchen sink. I would completely encase the, the kitchen in plastic drop cloths, and I would dye at the kitchen sink. Um, and where do you so, dye now? Because we're upstairs in the third floor of your home and there's no water up here. So where are you dying now? Right. I actually have a dye room in the basement. I have an unfinished room downstairs in the basement and that's my dye studio. It has a stainless steel sink and I actually have a little washing machine down there so I can wash out the fabrics down there. And so all my wet stuff, all my dyeing processes are all done in that room um, because I have no water up here. So, um, and I, and the other thing too is chemicals. You know, the only chemical that I use when I dye is the dye itself and I use soda ash and that's it. I don't use anything else. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's maybe somewhat less scary than maybe some people are, are imagining. Yeah. Okay. So, so you got into dyeing fabric, creating this palette and there's, um, there's bins. I'll try to take some pictures. There's bins all around here of scraps of, of a whole palette of, of uh, hand-dyed fabric. So, um, so what did you start to make? And, you know, I'm guessing there was some early success because there's nothing more motivating than success. Like once you start making something and people like it, then you're like, oh, I need to make more. And, and that usually leads somewhere good. Yeah. The first quilt that I actually made in the style that everybody thinks that I've been working in for like, you know, 20 years um, was my uh, Tutti Frutti Triple Decker quilt. Um, it was based on a sketch that I had done. And um, I made I made that quilt and um, that one and the one that followed, which was my um, uh, Tutti Frutti, I think it's the neighborhood quilt, were the first two that I did. And I had posted the the um, 
the triple decker one online and I got some really great feedback and I had fun doing it. And so then I went and did the second one and it was right about the time when it was time to submit to World of Beauty in Houston. And that's um, the at Quilt Festival, Houston right. International Quilt Festival, which happens after Quilt Market and is one of the world's sort of best regarded quilt shows. Okay, right. so you decided and to I, submit. Yeah, and I had been to that show and I, you know, thought there's no way my work will ever hang there. And so I I thought, well, I'll take a shot. And I actually submitted the triple decker quilt to the tactile architecture exhibit that year. And the... Um, the neighborhood quilt submitted to World of Beauty and they both got accepted. And that was a huge moment for me because it was, you know, okay, I'm I'm on the right track here. I'm, wow. I'm on to something. Absolutely. And then that those two quilts, you know, were the were the with the catalyst for all the ones that followed. Uh-huh. So absolutely. Okay. And would you characterize those quilts as art quilts? Definitely, yeah, art quilts. And why would you characterize them as art quilts? Um, because they are specifically to hang on the wall. You know, they are not utilitarian in any way. Um, they are made specifically to hang on the wall. Okay, so they are made as fine art in that way. Yeah, um, I don't know if I would call categorize them as fine art, but I would definitely call them as art. Um, okay, they are made as art because as they're an adornment for a wall. Correct. Right. That's how I view it. And you've made modern quilts since that time. I mean, you've done a lot of other types of quilts, but you've made modern quilts since that time. Uh, Would you would you say that that was accurate, that you have made modern quilts since that time? Yeah, I started making getting into modern quilt making last year, actually. Um, And did you see something or have an experience that introduced you to that style? um, Well, I you know, I've been following the modern quilt movement for a while because I'm sort of fascinated by the whole genre of that um, and how, uh, you know, just just all of the the mystery around what what is a modern quilt and stuff. And so I've been following it for quite some time. And it's very different than the work that I do. Um, you know, my whimsical, um, you know, uh, art, arty style that I have. Um, and so I wanted to sort of try it. I knew I was going to be at QuiltCon last year. And I thought, hey, it would be kind of cool to submit a quilt and see if I can have a quilt hang in there. And and, and I also, at the same time, have sort of burned out on color. So I thought, I'm going to try to work with just a neutral palette and see what happens, black, white, and gray, and see what happens. And so, and that's where the um, inside out quilt came from. Okay. And did, so you submitted that to QuiltCon and did. did it get selected? It did. And it won first place in the applique category. Congratulations. Thank you. It was very exciting. Yeah. Very so exciting. you've had some real success at shows. I'm sure there's been other show successes. There's a, a wall here of some ribbons hanging up. So um, yeah, so that must have been really neat. So now you make modern quilts and can you help us understand besides sort of you chose a different palette, um, although that palette is not required for modern quilts, it's black, not. white, and gray. Um, but what made that one modern and set it apart? I mean, it wasn't in your whimsical style your art quilts are, you know, they're sort of like an illustration. Um, and so this one wasn't that. But is that what set it apart or is there something um, else? I think for me, it was more that it was, um, you know, it was sort of grounded in geometric shape and form um, versus, um, you know, a recognizable image um, of some sort. You know, like I work a lot with buildings and structures and whimsical characters and stuff. And for the on the modern side of things for me 
you know, it's more about um, geometric shapes and and that sort of thing. And 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 a little bit on the lack of color, although I've done a couple since then that are sort of loaded with color. So, but it's more about the geometric shapes that are carrying them from one piece to the next. And was that quilt larger? Was it utility? I mean, so right, there's a sort of feeling that the one thing that can differentiate an art quilt from a modern quilt is that modern quilts are meant to be used. They're meant to be on somebody's bed or to be used as a throw or even a baby quilt, but they aren't nec- they can hang on a wall, but they should be of a size that uh, could be used. And one of the things that struck me when I was at QuiltCon uh, and you were there as well, walking around was, um, although there were many quilts that were quite large, um, some of them, you know, king size uh, quilts, there were quite a few that were quite small. And I wondered at that point, well, why is that, here and not an art quilt or what, I mean, maybe these, these divisions don't matter. Yeah. And, you know, I thought the same thing when I was walking QuiltCon too, because when I, I had never been, so I was expecting, (laughs) yeah, I was expecting all bed size, you know, those size quilts hanging. And I was, I was, I was really surprised when I was walking the exhibits that, you know, it felt like I was walking any other art quilt show. Um, because there were a lot of smaller and really small pieces. Um, and so I thought, well, that's, you know, I think, you know, maybe there's a shift happening here where, um, you know, the sort of art quilts are becoming more prevalent um, in the modern quilt um, area. And so, and the quilt that I did actually, um, I did it specifically for the wall. It was not meant to be, still not meant to be a utilitarian quilt. And all of the modern quilts that have followed that I've done are the same way. Um, and I sort of, that that's sort of, you know, again, me sort of breaking the rules and and sort of going off in the in my own direction, um, which I tend to do, so. <laughs> so you bought a long arm machine, is that right? Do you have I, a long arm no, machine? No, I don't used to have, have one. I used to have a Sweet 16. Okay. Uh, the sit down, um, I used it twice and then sold it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is an interesting question, I think, because you're not alone. I was just recently speaking to another quilter who bought a uh, uh, maybe a gamel or something mm. like that, and and was scared of it for years and then <laughs> sold it. Um, so I, I I know that you're not alone in that. Uh, so what what happened there? Um, you know, I I just don't I don't I'm not a big fan of free motion quilting. I don't I don't do it enough to be really proficient at it um, because I don't enjoy it. So um, I having, you know, the ability to have, you know, all that space was great to work with, but I'm just not a big free motion quilter. All of my quilts, pretty much 98% of, of all the quilting I do is with the feed dogs up. Okay. So you are doing straight line quilting Mm -hmm. pretty much with your feed dogs engaged. Correct. Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, which I think is also, you know, sort of it's not the norm. I, most, it isn't most, the norm. Most, Everybody tells yeah. you to drop them. <laughs> and I personally, I, I, I'm sort of with you. So I'm not, a, I'm not really much of a quilter, uh, although I'm a huge fan of quilters and quilts, but, um, but I, I struggle with that same, same issue. I mean, there's all, it's an art right. form and you need practice and I don't have practice. So that's part of my problem. But yeah, but I think there's, there's sort of this myth that surrounds the art quilting um, medium that if you're not free motion quilting, then you can't make an art quilt. Um, and that's really not the case. Because um, you need to be painting with thread. Right. And and that's not the case. I mean, you know, some of my early quilts, I did a little bit of mostly background stipple quilting. That's the one style of free motion quilting I'm, I'm pretty good at. Um, but, you know, that was it. I, 
you know, most of, like I said, just about all of the quilting I do is with the feed dogs up. Okay. And you, I see you have a, a really nice looking Bernina over there that's making me salivate because it's so gorgeous. Um, so are you, did you become a Bernina ambassador? I did. Um, I was been a, been a Bernina ambassador for three years now. Okay. So I know that that is actually a position that is really coveted for a lot of people. I've had quite a few consulting clients <laughs> who come to me and say, how do I become a Bernina ambassador? Tell me the steps. So so tell us some of the steps. Like how, what happened? How did they notice you or did you you go after it or because that's just something people really want to know about. Yeah, it was a combination of two things. I met um, the Bernina folks when I did the um, quilting arts TV um, segments because um, they used Bernina on the sets. And so I met them there. And then um, when I got back um, home, I reached out to Bernina and I said, hey, well, you know, what's the what's the deal here? Um, how does one become a an ambassador, because at the time I was thinking about making a ship from the current machine that I had. I was looking for something a little bigger. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll reach out and see what happens. And so I did. And, um, you know, I filled out all kinds of paperwork and you have to commit to doing some work for Benina. And um, I worked through all of that and and signed on. So. Okay, because you're basically becoming a marketing partner for exactly. them, a freelance marketing partner in exchange for getting the machine. And then there's some other perks as well. Right. Um, you know, you have to, with you know, there's different things you can pick to do um, over the course of the year while you're um, engaged with them. You can create projects for the blog. And that was kind of my thing. I did a lot of um, free projects for the Bernina blog, um, which was great because, you know, you're, it's, it's sort of a free marketing tool for both your, your Bernina and me. Yeah, right. exactly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, so it works out great. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's been a really great experience to work with them. Okay. All right, good. I think that's good to hear about. And so you're also somebody who really loves sketchbooks um, and keeping a sketchbook. And I, you know, I think I keep a sketchbook. I really like my sketchbook too. I'm just about finished with the one I'm using, which I've been using for years. But people use them in different ways and sort of to different levels of engagement with their sketchbook. And so tell us a little bit about how you use your, you how you use yours and uh, the advantages that you see for keeping a sketchbook? Yeah, for me, um, the sketchbook is sort of my, you know, it's my, it's my playground. It's where everything starts for me. Um, all of my quilts pretty much begin on the pages of my sketchbook in a little two by three or three by three inch um, sketch. And I'm not talking about nice, neat, pretty, perfectly rendered sketches. Um, because I think that's one of the things that scares people off if they're not comfortable working with a sketchbook. They think, well, I'm going to have to draw something. It has to be, you know, rendered perfectly and it has to be good enough to pull out of my sketchbook and hang on the wall. And that's definitely not the the um, er the, the uh, team that I'm on when it comes to sketchbook. For me, it's more about using the pages of my sketchbook to explore an idea um, and to take it from the thought in my head to something that I can maybe render in fabric at some point. So, um, you know, my sketchbooks are filled with, you know, pencil marks and scratches and lists and um, ideas and mind maps and really, really rough pencil drawings. Um, but they all start, all of my ideas and all of my quotes all start there. And is it helpful later to go back after a work is finished and see where it began? Yeah, it can be. It's It can be um, a really learning experience. You know, for me, I don't get hung up too much on if I've drawn it one way in my sketchbook, that's how it's going to stay. Um, and that's what it's actually going to end up being. 
Um, so for me, there's a lot of change that happens between um, what I've drawn and what actually ends up happening. Because what it looks like on a small piece of paper in your sketchbook may not necessarily translate when you get it blown up full scale. Mm -hmm. And you may need to make changes and add things and fill space and and adjust the scale of things. So, um, okay. So it's it's not, you know, sometimes maybe you wouldn't even recognize yeah, the way exactly. that it started. Yeah. And I love to write lists in there and mm -hmm. lots of words. I mean, there's a lot of words in my sketchbook and oh. arrows and that kind of thing. So it's not just drawings um, because I'm certainly not like an amazingly good um, drawer of things, but that doesn't mean that it's not a great place to um, to sort of work through ideas because exactly. I really visually work through yeah, ideas. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and I know you're still writing books. You have a book coming out. What is the book that's coming out soon? Um, well, I can't, okay. I can't give you too many details. Okay. Um, it's, it will premiere next fall um, at Market in Houston. Um, and um, I can't give too many details, but I will tell you that it's... Um, you could probably figure it out based on my win at QuiltCon. Okay. What the subject will be about. Okay. Um, All right. We'll let people draw their own <laughs> conclusions. And who is the publisher? C and T. I'm C &T. working with C and T with this one. Okay. And, and um, you have your how many other books have you have you done? I have two. I have my very first book was called The Sketchbook Challenge. Um, my second book is called Colorful Fabric Collage, and the third one is Yet to Be Titled. Yeah, okay. And were both of those with the same publisher, or no? The first one I worked with. Um, uh, Random House with um, Potter Craft, mm -hmm. the division of Potter Craft. And the second one I worked with, um, Interweave. Okay. So different publishers all three times. All three, yeah. Yeah. And how are you feeling? Um, I mean, you must be feeling pretty good if you took on this new project. But how are you feeling generally about uh, about traditional publishing? Because, you know, I, I also have three books with three different publishers. So like you and, and the first one, you know, came out in 2011. So there's been some time, you know, and watched it change. And it, it really has changed. I think the role that books have played in our creative lives has changed. And yet you said when you were exploring and learning about all these different techniques, especially about dyeing fabric, you depended on books. Yeah, I think, you know, I think books are a critical, can be a critical um, ingredient, especially for a beginner um, who's not familiar with a technique that they want to explore um, and maybe not comfortable winging it. You know, I, I know there's lots of information available out on the internet and stuff. And, and I think you have to be careful about what resources that, you know, especially on the internet, what resources you rely on. So um, I think books play a really important role um, for, for quilters and in any art medium. Um, and I've done both, you know, I've done self-published books and I've done books with um working with traditional publishers. And there's advantages and disadvantages to both, as you know. Um, but I think, you know, with this with this book, um, it, it was sort of out of my realm of, of skill set to self-publish myself. Um, and that's why I sought to work with a, with mm -hmm. a traditional publisher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. I also think that a book offers you a comprehensive look all in one collection at a particular thing. And there's something nice about that where a blog post or a YouTube video 
can at times feel disjointed. Maybe an online course feels more comprehensive and is more equivalent. Right. But um, but there is something nice about a book where from start to finish, you're getting this person's entire sort of opus about this one thing. Right. You get you know you get more of the backstory to it all. You know, um, and and in most books, it it takes you from you know it's a progression that leads you through from the first page to the last. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I think that has a lot of value and there's also a lot of value in having it open on your table Mm -hmm. in your studio, you know, while you're, while you're working. So, so there's still a place for books and still a place for authors who want to write them. Absolutely. Uh, Even if maybe the financial gains are, eh. Right. Okay. Um, I think you have to love it. You know, it has to to be something that, it has to be something that you enjoy doing. You know, I enjoy writing. Um, and so for me, it's, you know, it's a labor of love to do it. You know, I, I enjoy, not only do I enjoy the writing, but I enjoy passing on what I know. You know, I enjoy that, you know, sharing and helping someone else. You know, if I can help help a beginner um, or anybody, you know, sort of ease that learning curve, then, you know, I'm happy to do that. And you're able to write directions even though you don't like following them. Exactly. Yes, (laughs) I actually am in the same boat. I'm not a big direction follower at all. Uh, I actually have a quilt, uh, quilted pillow sitting, a pattern for it sitting on my work table that I've been avoiding because I'd have to follow the directions to make it. And I have all the fabrics and everything, but I'm like, I just want to do it my own way. So I'd say it's kind of a, it's an interesting situation to be in. So so is this, is is this this whole endeavor, that we've kind of gone through. Is this your full-time job? It is. I do this every day, all day. This okay. is what I do. All right. And and I feel like there's a lot of different sources of income, some of which we didn't even touch on. You have uh, an online class that you host. Um, you've, uh, you know, you, you do a lot of things. You blog, you do, and there's probably other things. Right. Can you just list for us, tell us the, like off the top of your head, the sources of income, like where does the money come in from? So it comes from teaching, both online and in person. Um, it comes from books. It comes from writing mag- magazine articles. Um, let's see what else. I do a little retail selling at when I um, when I teach. You know, I sell my hand dyed fabrics and some other things. Essentially, products that I use, I will sell um, when I do trunk shows or I teach. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of spread out. Um, I sell a little bit of work, not a lot. I'm not a big fan of doing commissions, so I don't take them very often. Um, uh, but I, you know, occasionally will do them. Um, and so I, you know, I've sort of spread myself out quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to do that. You know, mm-hmm. it's not, you you can't be in this business and with just one revenue stream. It's got to come from a lot of different places. And you don't have to select those exact ones. So right. in other words, if you don't feel confident teaching or you don't enjoy writing or whatever, you can leave those, um, those sure. out. Um, but you need to add something else in that you do like. Maybe it's designing you know, commercial fabric for a fabric company or, you know, having, doing all kinds of other things, you know, selling patterns, PDF patterns, print patterns at quilt shops, developing products. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do this, but you're going to need to piece together a lot of different income streams. Yeah. I think you have to diversify, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, just one revenue stream is, is, it would be a challenge. You could do it if you, there are people who can do it, but you'd have to be a wild success at that one thing. And it's involves some risk because if for some reason the market should shift, 
you are out of luck. And exactly. so it is, in fact, good to hedge your bets yeah. a little bit. And for me, you know, I enjoy doing all those other things. And that's why I do them. You know, if I didn't really enjoy teaching, then I wouldn't do it. But, you know, for me, I enjoy it. And that's why it's part of my... And have there been some forms of income that you've tried and not enjoyed and decided, mm, I'm not going to do that anymore. For yeah. me, it was craft shows. I don't do that. Oh, yeah. Because I can't stand it. And so I, I have no... I did it. I tried it. I literally, like, almost put my house in the market and moved because I couldn't stand... <laughs> the the craft like I did a craft show in my in my local area and then I was like I can't stand these people I gotta get out of here and and it was ridiculous but it was like I I just can't do craft shows that's what it is yeah you know? never again I did those way back in the early days yeah never again um so those are definitely not on my list um and like I said commission work I'm I just I don't I don't enjoy it I don't enjoy working with those structures um so that and I and I don't. You know, and this will make people gasp too, but I don't really like to sell my work um, because I, I get quite attached to it. So it's, you know, it's hard for me to sell what I make. Um, I do occasionally, um, but um, so those those three revenue streams are kind of not my thing. Mm -hmm. Right, okay. And I think it's, you know, you experiment. Yeah. You try exactly. it and then you're like, oh gosh, that didn't feel good at all. And it right. wasn't worth it, you know, a couple hundred bucks. So I'm not doing yeah. it again. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's good. Okay, and I, I, I wanna, before we go to your um, recommendations, I wanna talk about Threads of Resistance, which okay. is um, a show that you are, you're helping or spearheading to organize at, um, and it, well, you just installed it, yesterday, is that right? At the New Correct. England Quilt Museum, but it's going to be traveling. So tell us a little bit about what is Threads of Resistance? How did this come about? And and what what is the goal here? All right. So Threads of Resistance actually um, is a show, uh, traveling exhibit, um, curated by the Artist Circle Alliance. And um, there are several of us involved with the Artist Circle Alliance. I'm not the only one. Um, and um, it's an exhibit that came out of the election results. Um, and so a lot of us were talking and expressing our angst and anger and um, disappointment about the direction the country was headed in after the election. And so we put together an exhibit about um, to protest the current White House administration. And, um, and so... Um, originally, we thought it would just be for us. We would all make a piece and we'd see if we could find some place to hang it. And then we thought, well, you know what? It, we want to bring it out in the public. And so we put out a call for art. And um, we ended up getting about 550 submissions for it, which was about, you know, 500 more than we thought we would get. Yeah. And, and you put this call just on your own blogs and on social we media. Did. Yeah. Okay. And since then, it, you know, it sort of blew up around us. Um, it now has Threads of Resistance, has its own website. All of the artwork that was submitted is now available for people to view. 64 of those pieces will now start to travel around the United States. It um, actually uh, premieres, and we just hung it at the New England Quilt Museum in Lowell, Mass. yesterday, um, where it will hang through September 9th, I believe. And then it will travel to California, and from there, it will travel all around the country to um, including venues. Including uh, in Lincoln, am uh, I right? Not uh, in Lincoln. No, in the... it's going to Virginia. Okay. It's going all over the place. Okay. Um, and the schedule is on the website. Okay, so people, so people can, can check that out. Yeah, okay, to see where it's going to be okay. hanging in their mm -hmm. in their areas. Um, and it's it's um, I have to say I hung it yesterday. It's it's pretty amazing to see all the hard work um, hanging together. It's a really incredible exhibit. So, mm -hmm. and are some of the quilters included people who are very 
well-known national names? And are some of them less well-known people who sort of got inspired to do something for this? Exactly. And, you know, okay. it's, it's exact, and that's exactly what it's a mix of. Um, you know, for instance, uh, Judy Coates Perez has a piece hanging, uh, Lyric Kennard, um, uh, Jamie Fingles, Leslie Tucker Jennison, Kathy York. Uh, I know I'm leaving somebody out. Uh, Susan Brewick and Knapp. Um, so people and those whose are names people we've of the, heard of. Yeah, yeah. and those mm-hmm. are actually members of the Artist Circle Alliance, so mm-hmm. part of the curators. Um, and so, but but there are others that are in the, um, Kathy Nida has pieces in it, Neroli Henderson has pieces. So there's, you know, there's some really well-known um, artists that have pieces hanging in the show. And then there are others who maybe you have not heard of, mm-hmm. um, who were just inspired from the call and what's going on in the country um, and made some uh some pretty powerful pieces um, that we, you know, we felt we had to had to include. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a it's an it's an incredible exhibit. Um, so I hope I hope people will go and see it. And um, do you think there'll be more exhibits that this group will organize now that this has happened and it has become such a phenomenon? Um, maybe take a break, but uh, yeah. Um, I do. I think I think this is just the beginning. Um, I think the Artist Circle Alliance will definitely sponsor some more um, exhibits um, going forward. It's it's been an incredible learning experience for all of us. We you know we've never done an exhibit of this um, magnitude before, and to do a traveling exhibit, um, you know, there's so many moving pieces. The logistics of organizing a large traveling exhibit are. It's been quite a learning an, experience, let me tell you. I you feel need like you insurance. need insurance. Um, yeah. yeah, we I had to set up an LLC for it. Um, you know, there's insurance, there's copyright issues that had to be dealt with, there are meetings with lawyers. I mean, it's it, it's a huge undertaking, much more than we thought it was going to be at the beginning. We thought, oh, we'll put out a call, we'll get some quilts, we'll hang them on the wall, we'll be good to go. And um, and it's so much bigger than that. Um, but once you've done that legwork, it sort of feels like maybe we should use it for something else. Exactly. You know, yeah. now that we now that we have the experience and we've all learned so much, and we learned what to do and what we would do the next time. Um, you know, I think we would definitely will definitely probably do something again in the future. And what about pushback? I'm sure. I mean, whenever <laughs> you know, I, I, and I really haven't talked about politics so much on my blog, at least not explicitly, but. There have been certainly times when I've addressed social issues or issues relating to women's rights or to um, cultural issues in the United States. And and even there, really just addressing them related to quilting and related to sewing and the, and the home sewing industry, I've gotten really angry emails, personal angry uh, emails, tweets, comments, um, that, you know, I, I fortunately uh, have a thick skin, but some of them do still get under the thick skin at times. So I'm sure with something as explicitly political as this was, as this is, you've gotten, you've had to bear the brunt. And you, not just you, but you as this collective group have bared, you know, some of that. So what, how have you dealt with this? Yeah, we, we, we knew we would get pushback. Sure. Um, I was surprised by some of it that we got from um, from other artists, actually. Um, I think a lot of the pushback comes from the idea that um, these are technically quilts. And so even though they're art quilts, you put that word quilt on the on the on the label and people get um, all worked up in that, you know, they think quilts need to be, warm and fuzzy. And we got a lot of pushback in people saying that, you know, politics shouldn't be in quilting and um, this has no business in the quilting area. And 
um, which is sort of interesting when you consider that, you know, quilting has a long, long, long history of being used for political activism. Um, so, but we, we got a lot of um, angry emails and, um, and we've dealt with them as best we can. You know, our, our thing is to, you know, when they go low, we go high. So we've sort of, um, you know, we've sort of taken it in stride in that, you know, they're entitled to their opinion um, and, um, and, and we're entitled to ours. And so. Do you feel like there was any concern among you or other members of the group that you were going to then lose future job opportunities, you know, future income sources, like we talked about earlier, that maybe by being so, by putting your politics on your sleeve so much that people will say, oh, well, she was affiliated with that. Don't you remember that? We don't want her or something like that. Yeah. I mean, and, and honestly, a lot of us have lost, we lost a lot of followers in the beginning when we first announced that we were a part of this and this is what we were doing. I know for me personally, um, you know, I've, I'm in general, a very private person. I don't share much personal stuff on my blog or on my Facebook feed or on Instagram. And so for me to make a political statement and come out and say, I was involved with Threads of Resistance. I was one of the organizers. I got a lot of pushback and I got a lot of people who said, well, I'm done with you. I don't want anything to do with you. And I lost a lot of newsletter followers and all that. And, you know, my feeling on that is, you know what, that's fine. Um, Because, um, you know, I, I am just like anybody else. I am not just an art quilter. This isn't just what I do. I am a female. I'm a person. I am a human. I have opinions and causes that I need to be true to. And, um, and I need to be true to those. And if I'm not, then what kind of person am I? And so, you know, I just sort of took it as, you know, this is part of the, it's all part of the process. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. That's a great attitude um, to have, no matter where you fall yeah, on the political exactly. lines. You know? Yes, I agree with that. So, all right. So let's go ahead and talk about your list. And, and we slipped in an extra one here because you had <laughs> you had many good things to suggest, but they're all supplies. And so people love supplies. I love supplies. Who doesn't? So, so we'll get to all of them um, in kind of rapid succession. So the first one is Misty Fuse Fusible Web, which is, we were talking earlier about Fusible Web. So, so that's the kind that you like the best. Yeah, that's the only one I use in my studio. It's the only one I let my students use in my classes. Um, it is my go-to fusible. Okay. And why is it better than the others? Um, my, um, it is uh, a strong bond. It has, doesn't have a lot of the chemical solvents and things that other fusibles have in it. So I don't get that sticky needle, sticky needle yeah. syndrome on my, on my sewing machine needle. And with my work, because I build my work in layers, I can end up stitching through four, five, six, seven, eight, or more layers of fused fabrics together. And I have no problem stitching through that much. So excellent. Okay, cherry wood fabrics. So these you say come in a great um, palettes, and you've stocked your studios with these, even though you do hand dye. So so why why cherry wood I fabrics? I do. Um, you know, I I really like the cherry wood. They have a more uh, almost a more muted palette than mine. The colors are still nice and bright and saturated, but it's just sort of a step down from my brightness level. And I enjoy working with them. I, if I'm if I'm working if I'm not working with my hand dyed fabrics, theirs are the next ones. That and are, I, that are I those work with. solids? Those are solids. solids yeah, okay. and they're sort of a suede solid, so they're just they're really luscious. They're they are they are my they are I've my never favorite. I've heard that fabrics. term before, suede solid. I know exactly yeah. what you mean though when you say that the yeah. way that suede when you rub mm-hmm. it 
has that sort of color variation. Exactly. Right? Uh-huh. exactly. Interesting. And is that made by, is that a company or is yes. that made? Okay, Cherry Wood, I Cherry just don't Wood know fabrics. about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and they are my second go-to fabric. Okay. From my from my own. Excellent. Superior Threads. Um, this is a, a thread uh, brand that you're recommending. Yep. I use a lot of Superior Thread in my work. I prefer to work with um, 100% cotton um, threads just because I I do. I'm not entirely sure there's a big reason why, but I like it because I'm working with 100% cotton fabric. Um, so I use, and they come in some great colors um, that work with my color palette. And so I really like the Superior Threads and I really like the Superior Threads Monopoly thread. I, it's what I use in my bobbin. It's the, my, I used to at one point change my bobbin colors out to match my top thread and I don't do that anymore. I just use the Superior Monopoly in my bobbin. So what, it's, is that a color? It's a clear monofilament. Monofilament, so yeah. monopoly meaning it's a monofilament right. thread. And I've used a lot of the monofilaments on the market. I've had trouble with all of them. Yeah. The Superior is the best. Okay, so you just wind all your bobbins with this clear thread and then you change out the top color, but the bottom is always clear. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly, and it's so thin that, you know, you can get a lot of it on on a bobbin so I can sew for a long time. I, yeah, highly recommend that. Huh. Yeah, that's a good tip. Okay. And then Kai Scissors, I tried these out at Quilt Market uh, a couple of years ago. They're nice. Yes. So you have Kai 7205 8-inch professional shears. Oh, I see them. Yes, they're sitting right here. <laughs> so what, what's up with these scissors? Love these scissors. They cut like butter. I love these scissors for, for fabric. Yeah, I have a whole drawer full of scissors. Um, that I've collected over the years, every brand out there. And then I came upon the Kai scissors a few years back at one of the Sakwa um, conferences. And I picked them up and I made a cut with them. And that was it. I'll never go back. They're nice. So they're yeah. really nice scissors. Yeah, treat yourself to some nice scissors. Yeah, seriously. So it makes a big difference. Yeah. So, so Sue, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Wall Street Naps podcast. I Thanks. really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for having me. It yeah, was great. It was great. And it was great to visit you here in your studio. So you've been listening to the Wall Street Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, wallsheenaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And thank you so much to this episode's sponsor, Teresa Escone. Try Teresa's intermediate tutorials for ages 12 and older. You'll get easy to understand instructions, a line drawing, a color reproduction of the painting that you can print and frame, and definitions. Most paintings can be completed in three or four hours. Try the wonderful world of watercolor with Teresa. Shop at Escone Art Tutorials on Etsy. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you.